Hey, just a quick warning, there is a little bit of swearing in this episode. And he had his hand over, like he lifted his hand up over his face, like Dracula. And as soon as he did that, you know, all the bells and whistles in my head go off. And before, like I jerked to raise my weapon and before I could yell, shit Frank, uh, I got like, Shh, and then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. At the time, you know, adrenaline's pumping, I don't feel anything. I was like, holy shit, dude just blew himself up. Like, get to cover and then get ready to fight. Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this podcast, The Spear, is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single, one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. We've gotten tremendous feedback from listeners since we first launched The Spear last year. We've also been amazed at how much our audience has grown. So, for all of our new listeners, today we're reaching back to one of the first and one of the most incredible episodes that we've released. In it, MWI's Captain Jake Moraldi talks to Captain Brandon Thomas. In the summer of 2013, Captain Thomas was a troop commander deployed in Kandahar Province, Afghanistan. During a mission in August, he and his soldiers came across another American force in need of assistance. While they were halted, an Afghan civilian approached and detonated a suicide bomb. Captain Thomas talks about what happened that day, what lessons he took from the experience, and his recovery from the serious wounds he suffered. A couple notes before we get into the conversation. First, if you're just hearing The Spear for the first time, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other apps. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. That'll help more people find us and hear what are really some incredible stories about the combat experience. Also, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Brandon Thomas. Captain Brandon Thomas, thank you for sitting down and, and talking to us today. Uh, I appreciate you coming and, and discussing your experience in Afghanistan in, in 2013 uh, and maybe glean some lessons from, from your experience. To start out, can you give us the big overview, location, unit, generally what, what you were doing on, on your deployment in 2013? Sure. Um, so I was with the 2nd Cavalry Regiment out of Germany. Uh, I was a reconnaissance troop commander with a 4-2 CAV. Uh, we were basically in Kandahar province. Uh, we had different components of our uh, regiment doing battlefield ownership, basically. Um, terrain denial for uh, rocket attacks on the airfield, uh, that, that type of thing. Uh, my troop, um, Nemesis Troop 4-2, was specific, specifically tasked with executing several missions within the Kandahar airfield footprint. Uh, we had logistics patrols. Uh, we had uh, responsibility for the PTIDs outpost. 
Uh, and that's the that's the big blimp with the camera, yes. right? Yeah, sorry. Um, so it's the big camera blimp that overlooks Canar Airfield and the security for that that area. Uh, and we also were on a location called the JRAC, which is like a joint compound for, it's a joint regional Afghani compound. So they had uh, national police, the army, all sorts of folks. And we had a, an advisor team, mostly compromised of like senior level leaders. Uh, and I had a platoon and some change out there doing uh, security operations for the compound and, uh, you know, uh, personal security attachment for those uh those senior level army leaders. My role at the time, you know, as a company commander was just to kind of oversee these operations. Uh, and then I also had a platoon out in RC West, uh, you know, manning uh, another FOB out there uh, doing security with uh, multinational coalition um, West. So uh, very, very spread out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, the area is not what you think of when you talk about Afghanistan, not the mountains, not the Korangal Valley. It's uh, just north of, I think, the Regis Desert. It's the desert, uh, basically the, the south desert uh, mm -hmm. of Afghanistan. Wide open flats, uh, very dusty at times, very dry uh, year round pretty much. There's a, there's a rainy season uh, where it kind of just all turns to mud, <laughs> but for the most part, uh, dry during the summer. We, we got there in early July um, and, you know, kind of business as usual, uh, nothing too crazy uh, in terms of enemy TTPs. It was mostly rocket attacks the entire time. Uh, there was some some small arms fire. There weren't weren't a lot of firefights or anything at that time uh, when we when we first got there. And so because you're in close proximity to Kandahar Airfield, right, it's you are mostly dealing with just rocket attacks. It's it's managing Afghan forces close to close to Kandahar Airfield. Right, right. So I would I would say it was pretty similar, you know, depending on what unit you were. So the the folks that we were guarding for personal security uh, detachment, that role was very advise and assist mm -hmm. uh, type role, similar to what you saw, you know later in Iraq, uh, like in the 09 time period after the security agreement took, mm -hmm. took place. Um, you know, for the most part, the rest of, you know, the troops in my battalion and then some of the other uh, companies, they were, they were battle space owners. Uh, so they owned battle space uh, and their, their mission was to ensure that Kandahar Airfield did not get rocketed. So, you know, find the caches, find the people, you know, take down the cells, take down those organizations. Um, but nothing like, you know, Korangal or, or that type of thing. So uh, very flat areas, lots of dismounted patrolling, uh, that, that sort of thing. So we're going to focus the bulk of the discussion on uh, the 13th of August, which is uh, when you guys encountered a suicide bomber and a, a complex ambush mm -hmm. with, with that suicide bomber. Can right. you give me kind of a, a brief overview of what the mission was that day and, and what the general situation was? Sure. I mean, it was very easy mission. Uh, we were going to SP uh, approximately 05, in between 05, 0530. Can't recall exactly the time. Uh, and I was taking, you know, minimum patrol level out. I want to say it was about 14 passengers uh, for the patrol. Uh, we were headed up to the PTIDs. Um, 
outpost to conduct quick inventory for for my monthly inventories in August, uh, and then pull hippo, which is basically a large water tank, uh, and bring that back down to turn in. Uh, so you know, four trucks headed out on patrol. Very simple. Uh, out and back should have been back by nine ten o'clock. Uh, you know four-hour patrol max just to, to run up 45 minutes, run back 45 minutes, grab the stuff, do the inventory. And uh, then I was going to go back out to the J-Rack and, um, you know, business as usual out there. Okay. Uh, so, so pretty simple. So, so give me a, a picture of, you said four trucks, give me a picture of the friendly situation for this mission. You're, you're not going terribly far from Kandahar Airfield. You're moving between one American position or, or coalition mm-hmm. position to another. Um, give me a brief overview of what the what the friendly situation. Yeah, so like. based off of uh, enemy TTPs with the rockets, we had, I mean, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of vehicles moving in and out of the area on a daily basis because Kandahar Airfield is the the main hub there. Uh, you have a lot of people closing down um, their outposts or you know their their cops, so equipment's getting turned in on a daily basis. Uh, you know, you have people running down from Kandahar City, uh, the, the seat of Kandahar province, um, you know, turning in equipment, you know, doing admin on the airfield itself. Uh, so, you know, in general, it's not abnormal to, to go out um, up to this outpost with a four vehicle set. Uh, we had three gun trucks, one uh, um, logistics truck to pull the hippo uh, and you know, it was just very simple, very simple mission. Uh, didn't even really need that many dismounts because it was, like I said, we're just planning on driving up there, driving back. And, you know, the enemy threat level was low, uh, yeah, very wa- low. Walk me through, yeah, what your understanding of enemy situation in the area was. So the enemy situation, again, uh, you know, straight up rocket attacks. Um, there was no small arms fire. We had, I mean, we'd been there for about a month and a half hadn't encountered any hostile engagements, no gun truck battle, I mean, nothing, you know, uh, for the most part. Um, What's kind of funny is, uh, or ironic, I guess, uh, about 30 minutes after we SP'd, uh, the morning intel dump came, and I had kind of held the patrol for 10 or 15 minutes to see if anything would come, but nothing really changed. You know, it was it was pretty pretty static in terms of the threat level. Uh, however, that morning they pushed out that twenty suicide vest had uh, hit Kandahar City the night before, um, based off of some human that they had gotten. And uh, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have waited for the intel push. Uh, you know, delayed the patrol 30, 45 minutes, but. Given the circumstances, I didn't see that as justifiable uh, because we had other missions to do that day, and that platoon wasn't that wasn't their only patrol that that day. So uh, I know I needed to get up there, get the hippo, get back, and you know run back out to the JRAC so I could continue mission out there. So based on the friendly situation that you have, there's lots of convoys that that are moving up and down these roads. There's lots of activity around Kandahar Airfield. And the enemy situation doesn't seem that significant. So your concept of the operation is essentially we're just going to move from point A to point B, bring our three gun trucks, grab grab the stuff we need. and and You know, we do our mission briefs as normal, um, you know, do the rehearsals. Again, you know, I'm not saying, oh, we treat this la-di-da-di, everybody just kind of 
out for a nice Sunday stroll. Right. It wasn't that by any means. Uh, and I know that, that kind of comes across colloquially, uh, you know, just kind of talking. But, you know, the brass, the brass tacks were there was no small arms threat. There's no small team threat. I mean, it was the complete opposite of my experience in Missoula, you know, complete opposite. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- there was literally no threat. Now, as we started going into the mission, um, you know, again, no issues. We, we leave uh, our FOB, uh, FOB Lindsay, uh, just south of Kanar Airfield, uh, where my battalion was headquartered. Uh, we move east along, um, I can't remember the, the road we called it, but it's basically Kanar Airfield Road that uh, T-bones into Highway 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they have the Afghani checkpoint. We hit that Afghani checkpoint and we start heading north on Highway 4. Uh, we probably started going down Highway 4, normal rate of march, uh, you know, 30 miles per hour uh, on the highway. And we hit what looks like uh, some congestion. So there's like some traffic, which isn't very normal, I'd say. Uh, so right then and there, you know, I hear the chatter between my platoon leader and his platoon sergeant, and they decide to kind of just bypass and, and keep moving. But as I look out the side of the MRAP, I see um, what looks like a U.S. vehicle on its side. So mm-hmm. I said, hey, you know, LT, let's hold up. Uh, I want to check and see if, if they need assistance. Um, you know, so, you know, they, they do a short haul. Uh, we do a quick herringbone on the side of the road. Uh, on Highway 4, you know, I drop ramp, uh, hop out, and I go over, and sure enough, there's this Matt V, you know, on its side. And I see two guys trying to trying to kind of push it over, and I'm like, what, what the hell are they doing? It's a Matt V. They're not going to lift this thing up. And I look down, and there's uh, a body underneath. And at that point, I'm kind of like, oh, shit, you know, hey, what do you guys need? And they're like, hey, we need help getting this off. We need a medevac. Our guy's having trouble with his combo, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, Roger. So, so this is a separate American patrol from, from yours. Roger. So we came across uh, another patrol. Um, turns out it was uh, a Green Beret unit headed out to Panjaway. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of hindsight, you know, I, details that I found out later. But, you know, uh, come up to him, start talking to the lead guy. You know, he's, he's like, all right, Roger, this is what's going on. I was like, okay, got in briefed. Um, Ran over to my platoon sergeant's truck, or uh, so talking to Sergeant Bat, uh, Sergeant First Class Adam Bat, and you know I'm like, hey, Bat, get on the horn of battalion. We need a medevac. Let's get on the ground, figure out, assess the situation, drop the medic, come with me. Uh, so you know, medic comes with me. We go back there. Uh, we get a truck up with a winch. We pull the truck out. Uh, get some litters on the ground, medevac starts, you know, everything starts spinning at that point. Um, we ended up medevacing four of their guys. Uh, one guy lost part of his hand um, from from the rollover. Uh, you know, one guy, I think his like hips or spine had some damage from the from the vehicle crush. Um, but we got them we got them medevac fairly rapidly. I mean I would say within 25 minutes, all four guys were off the ground back at Kenar Airfield. Uh, my platoon had a coil at this point, so we moved from herringbone to a coil uh, to kind of keep space and distance, bypassing traffic around us um, on a side road behind this market, which was situated uh, just east of the road, maybe 
50, 60 meters from Highway 4. I mean, not, not that far, uh, maybe even 25. I, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but it was fairly close to the road. Um, so we were just trying to keep space and distance. Uh, and one issue that I noticed was the Matt V that rolled over um, had basically thrown all of its contents. They had uh, an EOD robot uh, with them on the team. So there's parts everywhere, electronic components. Uh, their Mark 19, uh, some of the link ammo, uh, the 40 mic mic had come undone, unlinked and spun on the ground. So we weren't sure what was live, what wasn't. Um, and we were just, that was another concern. Uh, we were also trying to police up all their sensitive items. Uh, they were missing a rifle, uh, and some other things. So, you know, we were basically trying to get control of the situation as rapidly as possible so that, you know, we didn't have to go <laughs> building by building clearing, uh, with, you know, maybe a, a fire team of my recce guys, <laughs> uh, to, to try to find these sensitive items. So, so, so at this point you're, you're out and back mission to the, to the PTID site has turned into kind of an impromptu recovery yes, mission. You yes. guys have taken over the security for this rollover. You're helping with sensitive items. You're doing medevac. You're, you're you know, you're kind of managing, you're, you're responsible for it's mission for the, it's the it's, fight, so to speak at right. this point. At this point, um, I didn't get the impression that the SF dude outranked me. So, uh, you know, as a company commander, boots on the ground, captain, I took over, uh, and ultimately come to find out it was an E8. Uh, so right call, I guess, you know, um, but I was responsible for that site. So site security, uh, my, my men, my troopers, you know, I had to make sure they had security. Uh, we were looking out the recovery operations to the best extent. I mean, we maybe had two or three guys uh, that could assist. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I let the the team, um, the team guys, try to start policing up their stuff, get their serial numbers, lay everything out while we were facing out just to make sure that we had security. We also called back up to battalion to let them know what was going on. Uh, we requested a wrecker um, at that point. Um, so that we could get the Mat V uh, out, we didn't necessarily need a full KRF, but they were going to have to spin somebody up because uh, we didn't have the manpower to do everything. Uh, nor did we have the recovery assets. So I wouldn't say we were recovery unit, but um, we were definitely at the security at that point. So kind of walk me through, given that you are securing this site in the hope that they can get a wrecker out there with the with the quick reaction force. What's the what's your security posture? What's kind of the lay of the land? You talked about the market uh, to your east. What right. what else were some of the security considerations? So um, we weren't overly concerned with the east side of the road. It was a large field. I mean, we had standoff uh, a good six hundred plus meters. I mean, there was like two to three football fields um, east open. Uh, both north and south. So, I mean, it was wide open type plain, pretty flat terrain. Uh, I did know that there was a wadi there because we had, we had to, we set up a hasty LZ out in that field uh, with, with uh, my platoon sergeant and some of their guys. Uh, and we carried their, the litters across there. So there was a small wadi running there, but nothing significant. Uh, so we put a truck facing that uh, area and basically gave them uh, that entire space uh, with 50 cal. 
we had a truck move up to the north to block the road, um, and then a truck on the south to block the road, and then we had one vehicle uh, on the west side of the road. Um, and correction, the, the market was on the west west side okay, of west, west uh, side Highway of 4. Highway. Um, so the east side was completely open. The west side had the little market, and then the road that all the traffic had been uh, basically pushed to was behind that market, um, probably another... 200 meters away, uh, 100, 100, 200 meters. So there was a market in between us, some houses, you know, no, nothing big, nothing two story, uh, pretty, pretty low. Um, There's a lot of civilians watching us, uh, but for the most part, they were keeping their distance because they kind of saw, you know, we had brought in choppers and all sorts of stuff. So they were just curious, but they were, you know, keeping their standoff because they didn't want anything bad to happen um and so we had one vehicle on that west side kind of covering the market space and the alleys and then uh we also to have um local security for each truck one dismount um you know basically around the truck kind of doing like a roving patrol just to in between each truck so almost like your third baseman you know just making sure he was close enough to cover if he needed to get behind a truck he could uh but you know, also being able to keep observation within, you know, 25 meters of each vehicle uh, to ensure no dismounts would kind of come into our, our formation. Um, so that, that's basically like the local concerns. Uh, once that was established, I mean, I went back to talking to battalion, communicating with platoon sergeant, platoon leader, uh, trying to get back. I mean, at that point, we basically bypassed my company CP since I was on the ground. Uh, and my first sergeant was um, working at the JRAC because, or like we said, we used to switch out. Uh, we'd also, we always had one leadership since we had the majority of our troop at the JRAC with, you know, 70 guys because they plus us up to about 130, 150 um, for the various mission sets that we had. Uh, so we had about 70 guys, 70 personnel at the JRAC at any, any given time. So we'll, either myself or the first sergeant was always there. So my first sergeant was out there um, and I was, you know, basically with the troop. So we were communicating directly to battalion at that point, um, filling them in, letting them know, asking where the wrecker was, you know, that type of thing. Um, and I, I think one point to make with this scenario is that uh there were so many units involved and the actual battle space owner for where we were was Comcalf. So, um, you know, the, the Kanar airfield command had a unit that was a battle space owner where the incident happened. So they were technically responsible for the QRF, uh, quick reaction force for, for that location. Uh, my battalion was communicating with Comcalf, and so we're kind of like going up in chains and people going back and forth and, uh, and everything, trying to, to work the systems and make sure that the, the systems are in place and working, sure. especially since we just got on the ground, you know, within two months. You know, we want to utilize this almost as, as an exercise to exercise the systems in a real-world situation. Mm-hmm. Now that we have security, the, the urgents are off the site you know, getting help that they need. Uh, for the most part, you know, my guys, I got some junior guys, first deployment, so they're they're paying attention. This is like, you know, no shit, like real deal, right? Uh, real deal, Holyfield. So um, uh, I, 
I kind of lose track of time uh, from from this point forward. So like from the from the helicopters leaving until the incident itself, uh, I could not tell you exactly how long we were on the ground. Uh, as a commander, I could feel that it was too long, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's one of those things where it's like you just start getting that itch, right? It's like, hey what's going on why is why isn't there a record let's get off the ground right sure. like, especially, especially when you're you're waiting on other people right it's not your guys that you're waiting on you're we've waiting been on sitting there to too long you know it's gotta let's pop smoke and go you know uh so at that point um again i'm dismounted not really sure what the communication between platoon sergeant uh platoon leader and battalion are at this particular moment so i grab the pl uh and i say hey there's a wrecker, I, I could see the, a wrecker in the traffic uh, coming on the bypass. And so I told him to go get that wrecker uh, and get them, get them here. So it turns out, I, I can't remember the MP company it was, but they were up in uh, Kandahar, Air, or they were up in Kandahar City proper and they were actually returning some equipment, their wrecker <laughs> specifically, uh, but they had the crew with them. So, you know, I was like, hey, can you guys help us out? Don't know what the ETA is for, you know, the record from CAF, uh, ComCAF, not really getting Camo back down to us. Can you help us out? So, you know, they, they're like, all right, sure. They pop in. They're evaluating the situation, trying to figure out what they can do. Uh, and then, you know, some some Brits pull up as well with a record at this point. So now we've got four units in like a, a space that's maybe, you know, 100 meters by 60, 70 meters Uh and you know, like an oval type shape, uh, and, and so we've got some Brits. We've got what's left of the SF guys, and um, now the the MP company. Uh, and it was like one platoon from the MP company. It wasn't a full company. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so at this point, you know, the MPs and the 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 other mechanics from the Brits kind of are figuring out how to get this Matt V hooked up. Uh, ultimately, they decide the Brits are going to take it um, so that the MPs can go turn in their equipment and okay. get back up to the Kandahar City. So I tell the MPs kind of, all right, push out on the perimeter, help us provide security. Uh, if you guys, as, as soon as we get the Map V up and running uh, on the wrecker and it's hooked up to go, we'll release you guys. You head off to Comcaf and we'll, we'll part ways. Uh, and by this time, we had decided that we were going to bring the uh, Matt V back to Fob Lindsay instead of Kanhar Airfield because the SF unit was co-located with my battalion on Fob Lindsay. So that was what my battalion and the SF um, company commander had determined. And so, you know, they're starting to do the hookup at this point. You know, we, I feel like we had been there at least an hour. You know, we had already run a couple hundred meters plus back and forth doing medevac ferry, picking up stuff, finding sensitive items, uh, full accountability, you know, loading up what we could on random trucks that I had, uh, you know, the UXO that was, wasn't, you know, live. Uh, thankfully we had an EOD guy on the ground with us. So he was able to handle the loose 40 mic mic stuff, um, and get that secured. Then, um, I was going to troop the lines, check on the guys, uh, bring them some water, stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, so I, I was headed uh, west across the road. We had a, a cooler that we had put in the center of all this coil 
um, kind of as our like little center point, um, grabbed a water and I was heading over to uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Frank and he was the lead scout for that platoon, um, third platoon. And uh, Sergeant, Sergeant Frank uh, was kind of, he was, he was facing out and I you know yelled at him like, hey, Sergeant Frank, what's up, man? You, you good? Uh, you need a water? And he kind of ignored me. Um, and so I was like, you know, maybe he didn't hear me. So I, you know, speak up a little bit louder. I'm like, hey, Frank, you know, what's up, man? Uh, you good? You need a water? No response. So I start getting a little, you know, irked that he's not responding to me. Uh, and so uh, I, I noticed that he's looking off kind of to the side and pretty intent gaze. So I, I follow his gaze over and I see this, I mean, almost like a kid. I mean, he wasn't like a kid kid. He was, I think they said he was 15 or so, um, maybe like five, six, small frame walking from the market, like little alley from the market mm -hmm. towards our perimeter. Uh, and by this point, he um, he's almost parallel to Frank and we make like a I, isosceles triangle. Uh, and as I, I'm looking at this, this kid, he's maybe 20 meters from me. Uh, coming out of the the this alley and he's dressed in like pristine white and anybody who's been deployed you know to Iraq Afghanistan can tell you you don't see clean linen like that almost ever unless it's like a wedding or a special occasion so immediately in my mind I, I catch the fringe I catch glints of gold off of the fringe and he had his hand over like he lifted his hand up over his face like Dracula and as soon as he did that you know all the bells and whistles in my head go off and before like I jerked to raise my weapon and before I could yell shit Frank uh, I got like Shh, and then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion um, and I, for the, I was just stunned for a second. I get, you know, dust everywhere. I can't see anything. I mean, it was almost like a movie, you know, that you see. Uh, I got ringing in my ears. Uh, I can't, I literally cannot see a foot in front of my face from the dust. I mean, like, it was just red dust everywhere. And all I, I looked down, my leg apparently got, like, shredded. Because um, when I went to, I turned my body kind of to like my right shoulder towards the attacker as I was drawing my weapon up. Um, and so I took shrapnel pretty much to all down the right side of my body. And I'm looking down and my leg is just, there's blood soaked through my, my uniform. And I'm like, fuck, okay, there might be another guy. So I, you know, thinking, okay, we just had a penetrating attack. We're going to get either a guy running in with an AK-47 or another bomber, like, almost instantly. So I turn around and I go back towards uh, the east side of Highway 4. And as I'm going across Highway 4, I'm kind of, like, stumbling back over to where the platoon leader's vehicle was or where I remember it being. It was almost, like, right on my 6 when I was headed, like, due uh, west. So, you know, I basically did a 180 and I start kind of like jogging over there. And at the time, you know, adrenaline's pumping. I don't feel anything. I was like, holy shit, dude just blew himself up. Like get to cover and then get ready to fight. And so I get on the backside. So I, on the, I put the truck tire basically between me, myself and where the suicide bomber came from. 
Um, and then I like get down kind of, it was almost like a little divot in the ground. And another dude like plops down next to me. Um, didn't recognize him. Patch, you know, slick sleeve dude. So I'm like, okay, SF guy. Uh, and then the platoon leader hops out of the vehicle because he had hopped back in to uh, talk to platoon sergeant or something. Um, and he gets out and he's like, holy shit, sir, what happened? And he like sees my leg and he's like, I was like, Francis, get it. Here's my tourniquet. Throw this shit on. Uh, we, we, had, we just had a suicide bomber. Fucking let's get out of here. Like we got to get the site secure, figure out what's going on, um, get casualties accounted for, uh, you know, get aid and litter. It's time to go. This is what we trained for, uh, you know, back in Germany. So you, so when, when the suicide bomber goes off and you're able to make it back, you know, you're wounded, you're kind of thinking through the, the things that need to happen. What's the reaction of the rest of the element at that point? What are, what are they doing? So they, they didn't really know what happened. I mean, it was, for the most part, I would say, for lack of a better term, when the dust settled, all the other units on the interior, um, they had gotten shredded as well. Uh, I was about 15 meters from the guy. Frank and I were definitely the closest people. Um, and the individual was, I guess, headed for the recovery assets because I was like the soft target. Um, and so I was pretty much between them. So I kind of took a lot of it, but uh, they, they were on the ground. I saw people on the ground. Uh, you know, I, I said, we need, we need a Kazovac out here immediately. Uh, we need a QRF to respond, secure the situation. We got we to gotta blow out of here, you know. Um, so my element was on alert. Uh, I would say myself, I, I still couldn't hear anything. Um, and my ears were just still ringing. Uh, I could see, thankfully, I was, you know, wearing my eye pro. I had my gloves on. Um, you know, one thing my guys used to hate was the fact that I made them wear all of their personal equipment, uh, even the, the diaper, the, the swamp diaper, as they call it, mm -hmm. which is like this Kevlar diaper that they started issuing with like these um, Under Armour type short uh, with Kevlar pads over your femoral arteries. Uh, and so it was basically like I, IOTV material um, covering your, your private, you know, genitalia. And, you know, they used to hate me for making them wear it. But after that day, they Taylor like, sir, you're awesome, right? But um, anyway, the, there was a lot of internal injuries for the people who were wearing plate carriers. So lots of moaning, you know, what you see in, in a movie. I mean, it was it was surreal almost. And, you know, I, I love, you know, Francis to death, uh, the platoon leader, you know, but he, he kind of was uh, messing up the tourniquet a little bit. So I was like, all right, dude, um, slow down. We got this. You know, so I was trying to get him under control a little bit uh, and I kept kind of coughing um, and I was like, oh, you know, it's maybe it's the dust, whatever. And in my mind, in my brain, you know, I, I hear myself talking and, you know, because of the bone conduction and all that sciencey stuff. But basically, I, I kind of sounded like Kermit the Frog to myself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why, why do I sound like Kermit the Frog? And I kept kind of like coughing, like something was stuck in my throat. And so, you know, as I'm doing that, like kind of. <laughs> You know, as I'm talking to, to Francis, his eyes go from like the tourniquet in my leg, um, which the blood, the bleeding had stopped at that point for the most part. It was or at least subsided. Uh, and I see him like kind of 
we had I'd pulled the emergency cord on my IOTV. I was checking for other you know wounds and blood, uh, and he gets to my neck and his eyes get big as saucers and he starts like kind of shaking a little bit. And I'm like, all right, hey, look, go talk to Sergeant Bat. Get us the fuck out of here, man. You know what's going on. You got this. Like we trained for it. So I, I didn't want him looking at me anymore because um, he was kind of freaking out, and I just kind of sent him away to go manage uh, the casualties at that point with the platoon sergeant um and the his driver private summers had dismounted at that point so i was like hey can you tighten this tourniquet a little bit make sure we're good um you know i'm I'm, other than the fact that you know i'm shredded with a bunch of shrapnel uh i i don't feel terrible but i'm kind of like worried about my neck now um, because i can't see what's going on and everyone kind of looks at me like oh shit, you know, big eyes. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever, you know, maybe, maybe it's worse than I think. I don't know. But, um, about this time, you know, that the dust is settling everything, you know, we're getting policed up. No, no subsequent attack had happened at this point. So, you know, I'm counting our lucky stars, uh, and just trying to get sit reps from the platoon sergeant, uh, on what's going on as I'm, trying to police up my gear. Um, but I'm still kind of just like laying on one side. Uh, not really at that point, you know, Francis had kind of taken over, um, movement since I couldn't really like use my leg. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was, I mean, the next thing I remember is we start taking fire from my backside on the East from the East. And I'm like, son of a bitch, they had flanked us. Right. So, um, apparently, and you know, they, they got a lot of footage from eyes in the sky and stuff, the PTIDs after the fact. And mm-hmm. so the van that had dropped off the suicide bomber on the bypass road, followed traffic out and then looped around us from the opposite side of where we had done the HLZ mm-hmm. and was basically just spraying us from the, from the, um, you know, van that they had. Uh, so at this point I grabbed my weapon and I like, roll on my belly to start returning fire and I, I pull a trigger, uh, you know, like squeeze the grip and pull the trigger, uh, and like some bones like popped out of my right pinky, uh, out of my glove. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> and the, the SF dude next to me like saw it and he was like, sir, you're fucking done. And he like cut my cord off the, um, off my nine mil that was attached to me and the, you know, the M4, uh, and, you know, he, he grabbed me and like lifted the, my good side up. So I'm, he, he's on my right side, which is where I had gotten kind of hit. Uh, and, you know, he's helping me, um, switches over to the left side. And then we kind of like, you know, I hobble, like hop one leg up to the platoon sergeant's truck who he had came screaming up at this point, um, to provide more cover fire. Uh, we, we didn't again, have the personnel to secure the site at this point. Uh, and the platoon sergeant made a decision to uh, do a hasty Kazovac, um and get everybody off the site. You know, you, you can't, you, you can protect people, but, you know, equipment, it is what it is, right? You can, you can get, you can replace equipment, basically. Um, and so, you know, me and the SF dude get on the platoon sergeant's truck. Uh, I think maybe two minutes later, 30, I don't know, 30 seconds, two minutes, something like that, the... The medic gets on, the gunner drops down, uh, is talking to the medic, um, and I, they never tell you this, and this, I guess, is a kind of like a funny aside. 
tourniquets stop bleeding, but they do not stop pain, right? Like, so at this point, my leg is throbbing because there's no blood going to it and it hurts like a mofo. Like, I mean, I can feel like every pulse, like, you know, every throb is like a pain of some sort from all over, like all the little like holes coming out of my leg. I'm like, damn it, why don't the medics ever tell you this? You know what I mean? Like you, you never train for, for that. It's like, oh, tourniquet solves everything. Boom, you're good. Uh, wrong. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, they, the, the medic, the, the, the gunner asked the medic like, hey, what can I do? And he's like, hey, take your glove off, put your, put your finger on, on his neck um, just to make sure, you know, you stop the bleeding. And then, uh, you know, again, now I'm like starting to kind of cough up blood, uh, and my chest hurts a little bit, but you know, I'm like, okay, it is what it is. Uh, and at that point they collapse the, the coil. I mean, I can't tell you how many people they had thrown on all the trucks, but I mean, they threw as many as they could on all the MRAPs and took off for Kandahar Airfield Ambulance Exchange Point. Um, and, you know, there's stuff that you find out later on. Apparently, like, Kandahar went on high alert, and uh, they weren't going to let Sergeant Bat through, and he basically was just, like, speeding through, almost rammed the gate. Uh, screeching hole dropped us at the uh, ambulance exchange point. And, I mean, I, I, I don't even know how many people were wounded that day, um, but it was a lot. It was a lot of people. I mean, we, most of my guys were dis or not dismounted. Um, I, I think I had a total of four, including my, not including myself on the ground, four, four to six guys on the ground out of the 14 we had. Um, and so, you know, I was asking about Frank. I was like, how's Frank doing? Where's Frank? Where's Frank? Uh, because at that point, I was just very concerned about Sergeant Frank, you know. Um, I, he's a good dude, you know. I, I, you bond with people, you know, their wives, you know, their kids. And I was very worried about Frank, to say the least. Um, and nobody would really tell me anything. I don't know if it's they didn't know or what. Uh, I ended up getting on an ambulance. Um my medic had run out of morphine by the time he got to me. So I, I didn't get anything until I got to the, uh, to the hospital, um, in, in Kandahar, the, the roll three. Uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember my, my regimental commander had, he came in the regimental sergeant major, uh, general Sims now, uh, but at the time, Colonel Sims, uh, you know, I'm on a stretcher. The, the medics had cut my shirt off and stuff and the, the pants leg and all this stuff. And uh, he looks at me and, and he's like, hey, you're looking, looking like you've been eating pretty well out at the uh, J-Rec there. And I was like, sir, I've been doing wads every day. Like we have a CrossFit gym. Like I am getting it, you know. Uh, and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So <laughs> and he was like, you know, I guess the the word that it was a suicide bomber didn't make it back up to regiment in, in the time that we hopped on the truck and left. Um, so they didn't know that it was a suicide bomber. And they're like, what happened? Did you step on an ID? Like, was it a car bomb? Like, what happened? And I was like, it was a suicide bomber. And it was kind of like in disbelief. He was like, how, 
I mean, we just got intel about this. Like, how is this possible? So, I mean, basically, the enemy saw a target opportunity. We were on the ground too long, and they pushed their resources to where it could cause the most damage. And um, again, it just reinforces being on the objective, regardless of uh, you know whatever you can do to assist units on the ground. Get in, get out as fast as possible. If if you uh, are a planner, or you know, if you're in a talk, get assets to units on the ground as soon as possible, regardless of who owns the battle space. Because well, again, you can replace equipment, you can't replace people. Well, it does sound it does sound really clear that this this was one of those just targets of opportunity where yeah, you guys were, and, and you said previously this wasn't you, a TTP. You, there, you, there was nothing. you instinctually felt that you were you were on the ground too long. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that just gets beat into you at Ranger School. It's like, hey, what are you doing? You know, arty sim, arty sim, because you're on the on the ambush too long or on the raid too long. You know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, it wasn't like a five minute and arty sim or suicide bomber, right? It was probably like more of a sixty minute type thing, right? But again, target of opportunity. Um, you know, I I don't even know if it went as far as like this was planned with. Because come to find out, it was a motorcycle that caused the original rollover. A motorcycle cut off the um, previous, con- the first convoy, sure. causing the rollover. And I mean, they rolled like 75 meters. It was a bad rollover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the Mat V was basically in half, right? So just imagine that's it's a pretty sturdy freaking vehicle. And it was the back, the cab was intact and the frame, the truck frame, but the back portion was like hanging off of the mat v so yeah it was, it was pretty crazy rollover but um but so yeah. there's the potential even that this wasn't this wasn't fully a target of opportunity maybe it was something that there's there was a, a second or third third order yeah i think i think there's potential but and the only reason i would say that is because of the timing of the suicide bomber it wasn't until the actual recovery vehicle was on the ground and i don't think if I were the enemy, I don't think I would have pulled the trigger when that first vehicle stops because we just happened to be driving by, right? Like we weren't a recovery asset, a QRF, like nothing. Um, but again, you know, you, you never leave a fallen comrade, right? So we freaking stopped. Um, and, you know, would I change it? Would I change anything? No, absolutely not. I would stop all day, every day. Uh, so anyway. So, so in the end results... And you said you said there were a lot of casualties, a lot of wounded. You weren't sure how how many. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about your your leg, and alluded to a, a neck injury. Can you kind of articulate what what your neck injury ended up ended up being? Yeah. So first, um, it was it was probably a probably about an hour and a half. And I, after I you know I had been sedated by this point because I kept kind of freaking out about Frank. And eventually, someone was like, "Don't worry, Frank's okay." And then I kind of was like, all right, all, all my guys are back. Nobody died. Um, I can relax now, right? So then uh, I, I, I don't, I didn't know the extent of my injuries until probably until I got to launch duel. Um, uh, I, Which was a few days later, right? Yeah. So this happened on the 13th, the morning of the 13th of August, 2000. Um, 13 and I got out of I got out of uh, I got two launch duel I think on like the 16th so it was about three days later um, they had moved me from Kandahar to Bath 
Bagram Airfield um, to get a flight out sooner with the other casualties. And we actually met up with some of the folks we had medevaced um, there. Uh, and so myself um, and uh, Specialist Corey Mooser were the only two from my my troop that uh, ultimately ended up getting medevac. So, I mean, we had some broken broken bones, shrapnel wounds, but for the most part, um, I had three guys that stayed like local to Kandahar mm -hmm. doing recovery there. Um, and then myself and Moose got medevac back to launch stool. I took shrapnel, <laughs> I guess, it's lucky, unlucky, you know, it was right above the throat guard on my IOTV because mm -hmm. um, it kind of sagged down a little bit from the weight of my uh, my magazines on the front. And it went in, it punctured my trachea and esophagus uh, and basically the ball bearing lodged in between my T1, T2 vertebrae uh, before it severed my spinal cord. Um, so I'm blessed to be alive one and two be able to you know still have all my fingers and toes yeah um obviously i mentioned my finger i took shrapnel through um the proximal bone like closest to your knuckle on my right my dominant hand um pretty much shattered that joint and that bone uh had a couple surgeries to do a bone graft and uh, you know fix it basically um for the most part so I can't open open it, but it's still there, um, and I, I didn't lose too much of my grip strength, which is pretty cool. I took shrapnel through my, um, I got peppered on my right side, so it's kind of all over. Uh, the The most notable stuff is I took one through my um, shoulder, uh, nicked my lung cavity, broke my scapula. Um, and then kind of lodged in the muscle tissue behind my, you know, shoulder blade. Um, uh, I took some to my leg, obviously. And I mean, that just basically just damaged a lot of the muscle tissue mm -hmm. there. Um, thankfully, didn't destroy any bones uh, or anything like that. So for the most part, I, I came away really, really lucky with the, the throat injury, the shoulder injury, and the knee injury. So... Looking back at this this whole incident in some, I think one of the, the things that jumps out at me is you discussed several times kind of your, your instinctual understanding of things that were going to happen. We talked about being on the ground too long. You talked about even after the suicide bomber hit, one of the first things that, that you thought was sort of instinctually something else is going to happen. There's going to be another suicide bomber. There's yeah, going to be a follow-on attack. Mm -hmm. How... Was it based on your experience previously that, that you sort of had that inherent understanding that those things were were risks or, or that those things were going to happen? Or is it something that you sort of developed through through training? I would say both. Um, it's a combination. So you get, you get training, right, um, and a fundamental. So as an armor officer, uh, having experience, what I like to call the infantry finishing school, um, <laughs> You know, with, with those different experiences, uh, the Cav Leaders course, you know, deployment to Iraq, um, you know that tactics and then the fundamentals hold true for everybody, right? And I'll never forget, you know, uh, Colonel Budahas would always say, uh, you know, the enemy has a vote, right? 
And so if I were the enemy, right, you always have to look at it from the enemy's perspective. Generally, what do they do in an ambush, right? You initiate the ambush and then you, there's like a follow on slaughter, right? So, you know, I've, I've, there's so many videos of training and now it's like ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call them, the IS, you know, their training compounds. I say you have to, you have, this is your profession. You have to stay in and relevant and connected to what the enemy is doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. Um, it changes from enemy to enemy. You know, their, their TTPs change. They're going to use what works. What works for them is a penetrating attack with a follow on, right? They've done it in mosques, right? Where there's one suicide bomber goes in, blows up a mosque, follows in. I mean, they do it in um, Pakistan, they do it, you know, all, all over. Uh, then they'll follow up with an AK or another suicide bomber. Um, it's just what they do. You got to get through the, you got to breach first before you can, you know, cause the most damage. And so, you know, anytime you see that time and again, their TTPs, when they would hit fobs, cops, there was a penetrating attack and then a follow on, right? Uh, even in, in Iraq, you look at the, the mess hall bombing at um, uh, Merez, right? Many years ago, it was a penetrating attack uh, and, and then subsequent attack right so follow-ons um so you know staying relevant knowing the tactics uh knowing your fundamentals and how to react to it uh react to contact train 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 right like take every opportunity to go in the field uh because you know if you don't have the fundamentals and you can't react to contact you're done yeah i think i think that's important takeaway and, and something that is fascinating to me is the idea that again the a thing that in the moment seems as though it's instinctual is maybe not no, in inherent to you as a person. It's no. something that is developed over time so that it becomes it is. Like, it, like it's instinctual. Your, your fresh butter bars, your platoon leaders, right? Like I look back to when I was a platoon leader, I didn't, I didn't have that instinct, right? I didn't have that, uh, that little voice inside of my head saying, hey, Brandon, you're there too long. Brandon, right? Like it was more of, oh, let me go kick in a door, right? Like you, you want to go be there where the action's at. And I think over time with experience and maturity, you realize, hey, I need to, I need to be in the books, right? Like I need to read uh, military history so I know what's happened in the past. I need, I need to know combined arms maneuver if I'm a combined arms person. I need to know logistics if I'm a logistics person, right? Uh, and all of those branches are incredibly important for any mission that we have as a military, right? Um, I think, you know, some of my best friends are logisticians and, you know, they always joke that I'm a like meteor dude. And I'm like, bro, like if you didn't do what you had to do over the last 30 days, then when that firefight happens, I'm screwed. You know what I mean? So I, I definitely have an appreciation for everything that they do and see that it's a, it's a team effort um, across the board. So, you know, if I, if I can impart one thing, um, I've had a really great opportunity working with a lot of, or you know, just having the privilege of listening to a lot of um, senior army leaders. And one most recently applied uh, one of the like 10,000 hours, I know you've heard of that mm -hmm. before, it's like 10,000 sure. hours, um, to being a lieutenant. And to me, I was just like, wow, I never, it's so awesome that you applied it to being a lieutenant, but if you, he basically asks, he goes around and he asks the lieutenants in his brigade and he's like, how, how often or how many, how much time did you spend here? Like, how long have you been at 
insert army post. Let's say mm -hmm. Fort Hood. That's where I started out at, right? So it's like, how long have you been at Fort Hood? Most people answer, oh, you know, I've been here for two years, sir. And he kind of like, you know, says, okay, um, well, in terms of how your profession, right, if you're reading books and you're, you know, you know your manual, your TMs, you know, by like, like the back of your hand, that reading, that education, that professional development is actually increasing your amount of time you're actually in that position. And so you could leave after two years and actually have been there for four because you got in those books, you went out to the field, mm -hmm. you did the, the basic stuff and you, you mastered your field craft. And I would say by the time you get to the career course, if you don't have that, like if you don't know that, if you don't know that you need to be reading, you need to be you know, a master at tactics, then you're wrong, like bottom line. And I used to not think this. I, I showed up to the career course and I kind of developed that reading habit and pattern. I was like, you know, if I don't know this, I can't go and get in front of a brigade commander and brief them and not know what I'm talking about. You know, like I need to know what the reg says or, you know, tactically what our mission set is. As a company commander, you have to be able to brief your capabilities and limitations to another battalion commander if you get sliced off, you know, retask org. So, I mean, all these things are critical for your development, critical. Um, and I would say even here at West Point, one thing that cadets could do better is more military focus, right? Like they kind of approach military training uh, more spoon feeding, right? Where it's like, okay, I go out to the summer and you're going to tell me everything I need to know and I can forget like brain dump until next summer. Uh, whereas, and you know, there's the outliers, but for the most part, that's kind of the attitude. Uh, whereas if you go to physics class, right, uh, and you take pH uh, 205 or whatever it is, and then you have to go to 206, if you get to 206 and you forgot the formulas for 205, they're like, F, right, go away. <laughs> uh, so I, I, think, I think it's very important, and if I could get one thing across is know your craft, especially at the, the junior level, know your craft. So I want to I want to wind up with one one last question, and I think it's I think it's important because not a lot of people have had the the personal experience you have had of being wounded in a, in a significant sort of way. Can you kind of talk through what what that meant for you and and what that experience was was like? <laughs> um, I'm still experiencing it. I mean, it's this August will be four years. So I'll be like four years old, I guess, uh, with my new Alive Day. And um, I'll tell you, not a day goes by that I'm thankful my wife is who she is, um, that I have a, a spiritual relationship, um, you know, because if it weren't for, for that and people who have helped me through, uh, you know, I, I, the TBI from the explosion I forgot how to learn. Like I would have conversations with people and I would forget what we talked about. Um, I mean, you'd ask me something a day later and it was really frustrating for her because, you know, we'd have conversations and I wouldn't remember any of it. And she'd be like, okay, we're ready to go to the store, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm tired. I just want to hang out at the house today. And she's like, no, you said you wanted to go pick this up at the store. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, I didn't. I never said that, you know, like I never said that. And uh, so it was, it was really frustrating, but you know, I think the, it shows the power of resiliency. Um, there are people out there to help. It's not, it's not a bad thing to go talk to uh, behavioral health. You know, I've been in counseling since it's happened, and I think 
uh, it's helped it, like this exposure talking about it. I've gone from, you know, having autonomic responses with heart racing, adrenaline pumping, shaking, you know, um, bad dreams, things of that nature to, uh, you know, I can, I can sit around and talk about it and not freak out or, um, you know, be angry or, or anything of that nature. So, sure. you know, it, it takes time. And one thing, one thing you never think about being in the military, you never think about it is being wounded. Like you're, you're ready to die, right? Like you go over there. I had power of attorneys. I had the, the will set up. I was like, you know what? I I'm, I'm in a good place. If I have to meet my maker, it's, you know, after my first deployment, I kind of realized, you know, we lost my battalion commander, um, Lieutenant Colonel Gary Derby, to a, a V-bed about two and a half, three months into the deployment in Missoula. And, you know, after that, it was like, look, you can train all you want. You can do whatever you want to do when it's your time to meet your maker. Sometimes, you know, like, like, like they said earlier, the enemy has a vote. Um, and so there are certain things we can't control. And you accept that, you know, like you, you're okay with that as a soldier. Um, what you don't expect is to come back and be damaged, right? Like damaged goods or, you know, people don't understand. Some people just don't, like no one, you know, I hate to be that war vet that's like, you'll never understand, you know, but it's it's not that case. I mean, you know me for 14 years, yep. you know, so okay. it's, it's, it's been a long time and I look normal. I don't have, I'm not missing limbs. I, I, for the, for all intents and purposes, I'm a normal guy, but if it weren't for people like, you know, wounded heroes, um, hunting camp that got me out hunting and out in the woods again after this, you know, I, I don't know where I'd be, you know, to be honest with you, it's, it's the people who have helped me through the struggles because it's challenging. Like it sucks not to be able to pick up your daughter some days because you're in pain. Mm -hmm. Um, it sucks to, you know, not be able to do things that you used to do because your knee kneecap, you know, patella shifts because the muscles aren't the same in your leg and you can't run like you used to be able to run. I, I can't, um, you know, I bike a lot now, but, uh, and then I can hike a little bit, but, you know, I, I can't, I can't ruck like I used to ruck. I can't throw 80 pounds on my back and, you know, I've got spine issues now from the dysfunction, the, uh, the subsequent dysfunction from all the other, the issues from the explosion. I now have like a ruptured disc. And so, you know, I've got lower back pain and chronic pain on top of the other chronic pain. So, you know, there, there's a lot of things that you deal with, um, that you don't ever expect. And, you know, honestly, I don't talk to a lot of people about it because you don't want to sound like you're complaining. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the mentality you, you, I'm blessed to be able to still be in the army right now. Um, and I feel like I still have something to contribute. And so until I feel like I always have something to contribute, but you know, there's going to be a point in time where I just physically can't do it anymore. Right. But I see guys, you know, the guy that lost part of his hand that we medevaced, you know, he, he got back on a team within two years and was deploying again, you know. Uh, so, you know, being in shape has has a has a has a benefit. Right. Everyone's like, oh, well, I'm not I'm not really a runner. I don't like to run. Right. Like I'm a, at heart. I'm a tanker. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, so 
I, I don't like doing the running thing, but I did it to stay in shape. And yep. I can see a correlation between that and my physical recovery. You know, my I have full range of motion in my shoulder. Um, you know, I can't really do the lifts that I used to be able to do, like push-ups, like I used to be able to do stuff like that because mm-hmm. of the, the damage to my back and shoulder, like the, the, the shoulder blade. Yep. Um, you know, and that's healed, but, you know, there's a lot of scar tissue there and stuff. And so it's a new normal. And I think if you understand or if I could relate to people that soldiers that come back, um, even if they don't have any physical wounds, it's a new normal on a day-to-day basis. And being patient is the best thing that we can do, both with ourselves and with others. Well, Brandon, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and being open and honest about your experience. Um, I think it's it's valuable to hear not only the the discussion of the tactical situation and, and what happened on the ground, but also your, your sort of follow-on experiences. So thank you. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure, Jake. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Spear. One quick note about what you just heard. After we recorded, Captain Thomas reached out to let us know that in the podcast, we said that the suicide bombing had occurred on August 13th, 2013. It was actually on August 16th. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be releasing another episode very shortly. In the meantime, find us and connect on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and check out the great new articles, podcast episodes, and more that we publish every day on the Modern Bohr Institute website. Thanks again for listening.